welcome to the Anarchist Book Club with Danny Evans and me, Jim Yeoman. In this episode, we're taking a break from our usual format. To coincide with our first birthday, as it were, we discussed the first two pieces to be published in our new newsletter, 10 Years on the Turn and People Just Do Something, both written by Danny as reflections on the past decade of politics. We also use this as an opportunity to reflect on the past year. There's a link in the show notes to subscribe to the newsletter, should you wish to do so. I hope you enjoy this slightly different setup. This podcast uh, coincides with a one year since we released our first episode, uh, which was a discussion of Eric Larson's The Duty to Stand Aside. To kind of mark this one year anniversary, we thought we'd uh, use it as a point to launch uh, a new sort of initiative as part of the Anarchist Book Club, which is our newsletter, which you can subscribe to via Substack. And there's a link on all of our social media things and in the notes this episode. So Danny's taken the lead on the, the first couple of pieces that are going to go out through this newsletter, reflecting on anarchism and politics in the present day. So Danny, could you just give us a summary then of these first couple of pieces? The idea is to just try and think through the politics of the last 10 years or so, more or less from the, the point of the, I don't know if you want to call it the kind of Occupy moments, the, the square occupations that um, took place as a part of the Arab Spring and then also in um, Spain and London and in New York through the kind of institutional turn and the turn of um, lots of activists who were involved in that kind of um, occupation-based or direct action-based activity towards more uh, traditional organisational political uh, forms and um, thinking about what what kind of like conclusions could be drawn from that like what you know basically just trying to think through those events at my own activity and how I think about it and how I think like any sort of thinking about that could be sort of informed by a historical kind of sensibility or uh, thinking about radical history and trying to connect basically what we what we talk about in the podcast and the, the books we read and things to um, more recent sort of political developments. And the, the purpose of doing that is basically just to try and kind of work out my thoughts a, a bit more clearly and hopefully see whether anyone else has been thinking similar things. Yeah, well, I certainly have been thinking similar things. You probably won't be too astonished to hear. And it was really interesting and kind of affirming for me to see them written down because it's not it's not a position, as, as you make clear in, in these pieces, that that really gets a, an awful lot of attention, discussion, and those kind of things in wider circles. And the kind of position I'm thinking is, as you yourself, you know, say, we're involved in Spain in the Quince Mayo occupations. Uh, I was also in Spain at the time. Less involved, more kind of on a goat farm. But, you know, I was aware it was going on felt a part of that kind of moment, as I'm sure many, many people did all around, all around the world. But then, you know, there is this kind of general trajectory, which I think people will be familiar with, of, you know, people involved at that moment and then becoming involved in this institutional turn. So in 2015, obviously in, in the UK, you have the, the election of Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party, and we see the development of Podemos in Spain claiming to be a manifestation of the, the Kinsimaya movement in, in kind of institutional politics, the Sanders movement within the Democratic Party in the States and so on. You, you do hear a lot of people who 
have kind of gone on that trajectory, but less so, I guess, the people like yourself and myself who did not greet this moment, uh, you know, this this crystallizing of what was happening in 2011 into institutional forms, who didn't greet that with enthusiasm, uh, much hope, who were disconcerted really by what they were seeing around you know people who they felt that you know we shared the same politics and the same outlook actually turns out that that there is quite a big difference there well that's definitely one of the things that i want to kind of like think about or try and get my head around like i got really excited about the um the square occupations like i was in spain at the time it would have been a bit odd not to be excited i suppose but i'd not really been involved in sort of politics beyond like turning up to demos and things like that for several years beforehand and was kind of skeptical I suppose at that point in my life about what like direct action oriented politics could do then I was really excited about the um the square occupations because well they just seemed like a kind of rupture with the everyday you know it was like uh, it was exciting to to be involved in and it was exciting to see you know, I do, I do think there there is potential in these kinds of like moments of insurgent direct democracy, right? I know that they're, they're not like without their own without their own problems, but I think that um, in and of themselves they're they're exciting and um, developments. But subsequent to the, the the square occupations, like one of the ways in which it sort of gained momentum where I was living in in Granada in Spain was was around um, working groups in relation to uh, evictions. And I think there had been like a sort of anti-evictions group in Granada prior to the, the 15M. I don't know if it was a, a branch of the PA, the Plataforma Afectados por los Hipotecas, which was was already quite a substantial organization in in Barcelona, whereas most like, I suppose, famously active. But it was given a real shot in the arm if it, if it, if it did indeed precede the, the, the 15M moment. It was re- given a real shot in the arm by the square occupations. I think that was like for several reasons. I suppose like people who were involved in those occupations, particularly the more activist types, were really concerned that there should be some kind of concrete activity coming out of the squares. And there should be, um, you know, that, that momentum that the squares generated should um, should be channeled into some kind of positive activity that would have like, immediate positive benefits for people as a result you know part of what was interesting about the squares as a kind of consciousness raising um event was how people who were really at the the sharp end of of the crisis at that time were talking about being kicked out of their homes or like having that hanging over them so it seemed like a really um kind of obvious priority of that moment to organize around for somebody who'd who's like involvement in and a sort of political repertoire up to that point or like exposure to the kind of political repertoire of the left was either quite desultory um, A to B kind of demonstrations or quite exciting confrontational um, demonstrations but potentially had well like more spectacular or, or um, attracted more attention but weren't but you know didn't in and of itself offer concrete sorts of political solutions to problems to suddenly have like these um, mobilizations around evictions um, where you would like leave as you normally would like leave your house to go to a a demonstration and then come home from that demonstration thinking well you know a family or like 
a bunch of people or an individual or whatever has got a roof over their heads tonight where they wouldn't have otherwise. Just like I think it was completely transformative in how I thought of like the possibilities of, of direct action and sort of protest politics, basically, thinking that, you know, there could be this concrete positive like manifestation of protesting, but also that, that, that those protests could be linked to a broader political project or to a broader political vision. So like you would go out and protest against the, you know, um, the eviction of one individual case. But really what you're suggesting by your protest is that no one should be evicted from their homes and that ability to pay uh, and that your, you know, that your right to shelter shouldn't be dependent on your ability to pay. Okay. Which is like a, which is obviously an anti-capitalist way of thinking about things. So I, when I came back from Spain, like the following year, like 2012, that I thought that's basically that I, I've been enthused about that as like a sort of way of thinking about politics, right? So that you have like this kind of um, maybe you want to even call it utopian approach where you think, okay, for example, nobody should be kicked out of their homes or like everyone should have a home. Um, but, uh, but you adopt a, a, a sort of practical approach to politics that has like, that doesn't just argue for that as an abstract ideal, but actually enacts, that with positive consequences for, for people. And which also like has all kinds of other like potential effects of like showing the neighbors in the area and things, the possibilities of collective resistance. You know, I mean, it, it was remarkable. Like Granada was, well, the people involved in the group would say to the press and things like this, that Granada is a, an evictions free zone. Like anytime anyone got in, got involved, got in touch with the group, or at least it seemed like that was the case, you know, in the months that followed the group would mobilize and stop that person from being evicted. Like even when it was like really out of the way places, even when hardly anyone turned up uh, initially, you know, you get neighbors out and things like that. And it just always worked. Like even when you were like really nervous that it wasn't going to work, it just always seemed to, you know, like um, it really, I suppose, like looking back on it, bailiffs, banks, um, local police forces, all were all more or less caught on the back foot about, you know, this, this wasn't a city where there, there was, um, a particularly recent um, tradition of like that, of that kind of process, I don't think. So it was something that um, was quite new. And the, when, when at least when I was there, the authorities hadn't thought of a way of responding to it particularly effectively. And, you know, I suppose because of the context as well, in which it was, it was affecting so many people, there was like a kind of, a, you know, a sort of a sense in the atmosphere that this is, that these kinds of evictions are wrong and that, um, you know, something, you know, must be done to, to stop them. So you weren't like going against the kind of common sense of the people who in your area or anything like that when you were getting involved in these protests in a way that in lots of other types of protests that I'm sure you and listeners have been involved in, you often do feel like you're running up against the common sense of um, people. So when I came back to the UK, I thought that, you know, that's if I, I thought, well, I'm, if I'm going to get involved in politics or in political activity, that's the kind of thing I want to do. So I ended up getting involved and, and by sorry, just want to sort of clarify, I don't think I'm like some kind of activist Superman and I really don't want to kind of give that impression that I'm like that I'm like boss at <laughs> activism or anything like that because I'm really not. Um, but, you know, just even think within like terms of like sort of relatively low risk involvement in um, groups that I would get involved in something that had that, a similar kind of um, matching of agendas, like where on the one hand it, it matched like my idea about like, you know, how society should be, but on this, at the same time had like these concrete 
sorts of direct results. And so I got involved in um, uh, No Borders, a No Borders group. And, um, you know, I mean, in some ways, obviously, like the idea of advocating for No Borders in well, in in our society, is like obviously going against the grain of like what most people think in a way that was totally different to the anti evictions thing. So in that sense, you it, it it felt like more like a kind of uphill struggle, I suppose. But in the sense of like combining what I really think, which is that there should be no borders, and that's the kind of society that we should, you know, keep very much at the forefront of our, our minds as like what we want, alongside like actually you know get helping people avoid. Um, being deported and you know I think like with any sort of no borders group you have lots of um cases where you know your your involvement your activity does make a massive difference to whether people get deported or not I think you know I thought I thought that was like a really you know another sort of comparable way in which you could do politics right that you didn't you didn't and you didn't necessarily have to like have dense theoretical debates about it or anything you didn't even need to like have any kind of particular coherence on like classic questions of of politics and organization and things like that you you basically just had to agree with those two ideas right your idea with the you agree with the basic vision of society and you agree that you can do things like directly and actively to help um win concrete uh, gains you know from that perspective um but I think that in that period of like a, f- a few years, like from 2011 on, I kind of like had the, I suppose, blithe assumption that that there was a kind of overriding kind of political coherence to that. That's, that meant that, you know, it, it, it couldn't really be just co-opted by status projects. And now I think that that was... Um, well, probably quite silly of me, really. And that what I thought was completely different to, say, being involved in the Labour Party or whatever, to a lot of people, didn't seem particularly different, right? Like, um, if you want, for example, if you want to stop people being deported, um, then you might think, well, you, you know, you join the Labour Party, you get the Labour Party to have a left-wing government, and you introduce a, um, a more humane approach to migration and like we we think that's basically not a poss- not a political possibility right we have a critique of that way of doing things um but i think it was i i'd kind of assumed that that critique of status politics was inherent to that kind of activity but it wasn't it wasn't and for, and for a lot of people that it was continuous and what was like kind of remarkable about the institutional turn as it kind of played out was that it wasn't just that it was continuous for people who you'd met just through direct action like recently and you know you didn't really have like a sort of in-depth understanding of where they were at politically and things like that um you know those kind of people got involved in in the Labour Party what have you people who were older than you (laughs) and had been in politics for longer and you'd thought like had more or less arrived at those kind of similar kind of conclusions ages before like I'd even got involved in politics, also thought, you know, all of a sudden that there was some kind of continuity or some possible, like, I don't know what you want to call it, like complementary, you know, like um, as being involved in a kind of, in a statist project or like, you know, trying to capture state power through the Labour Party, 
and you know a direct action based street politics and you know even like sort of the theorists of that kind of street politics you know or people who had been or seemed to be the theorists of that kind of direct action oriented politics were also more or less kind of going along with it i just kind of wonder about that really i kind of wonder about that so what what is it what is it about um the politics that we think that is distinct um is that something that we should then like try and foreground more um why is it that like so few of us had like those kind of awkward like political arguments with people who were like moving towards things like the Labour Party or I mean at least that's how it you know that's my impression um and those are things I just kind of want to think through really and sort of trying to think through the consequences of it and and also some of the sorts of shortcomings or potential shortcomings of my approach to politics in the last 10 years a risk here that and you make this clear in the pieces and it's not something i think that either of us are particularly you know, keen to do is now in a kind of post 2019 election the mask off of the labor party in the uk for example don't want to be like well we told you so like that that isn't that isn't the exercise here but it is about thinking through those years as they happened as you're doing it you know putting yourself in that place just wanted to kind of swing back to that word of, of continuity like there's a continuity between the squares between the, the protests of 2011 and then becoming involved in institutional politics and you know particularly again with that large section of people who you know basically up until 2015 would maintain an anti-statist position but but then move into the Labour Party yeah I wondered about that word continuity because really what you heard through those particularly in the years up to 2017 i would say i think afterwards it's it's almost a different tone to labor in the uk and it's more hubris it's it, it becomes much more familiar to me i suppose as the labor party types of discussion you know much more of shouting down of what's you know electorally viable and things you know oh no borders is all well and good but actually you know you need to win voters in xyz i think you see more of that now and that can think of it but I'm trying to place myself in 2015 to 17. And what I heard more than the Labour Party is a vehicle, everyone get on board with Labour, was we have changed the Labour Party and it is no longer that thing that you cranky anarchists think that it is. You know, we, you're wrong about what it is now. Yes, you were right. Pre-Corbyn, pre Labour was awful, but now it is, it is new. And I guess you see that articulated more clearly in Spain because Podemos are a new party and they frame themselves explicitly as a break from the old, all of their kind of rhetoric and, and you know, styling is of not being the PSOE, particularly, again, in those earlier years. The PSOE, the, the equivalent of Labour in, in, in Spain, the, the, you know, the traditional social democratic party. It's that idea of, you know, do you think then that it was a lack of coming to terms with what it means to be critical of state power that led people to believe that this this time it could be different and and not only that it could be different sorry to go back to it, another point you made is to not be satisfied and and rightly so in some ways like you know we we shouldn't look back to 2011 and think that was that was a victory and we should be happy with that but more like you know not to be satisfied with doing the kinds of actions that you're talking about with stopping people being evicted with mobilizing communities 
more broadly to stop evictions, to making a whole city, you know, as you said, an eviction-free area, to stopping somebody from being deported, to stopping fascists from marching through your city and claiming that space and threatening people around you. I I wonder if there is a, a sense of that, you know, in that movement that either, you know, a lot of the people there profess the politics that are associated with those actions, but perhaps were not as, you know, not a, a massive part of them and maybe didn't see the tangible, concrete results of, of, of operating in that way. Or they did see them and they still came to the same conclusion that, that's not enough that that really you need to you need to do the big boy politics now you know we've we've done that you know we've we've mobilized a bit and now time to jump into state power to make those gains concrete and not being not being satisfied not being happy i think that that lots of people did did think that and there is i mean there is obviously there are criticisms to make about um certain aspects of like what gets called folk politics, right? I don't know if you've read that um, Demand the Future book. Cernicek and Williams, I think. Yeah. Am I saying that? Is that right? Um, apologies if, I got, if I've forgotten their names or anything. Yeah. But, um, but they, yeah, they begin the book with like a critique of like, basically of the, of the, I suppose, of the kind of politics that I've been describing. And it's a broader kind of um, lineage going back to like the kind of anti-capitalist demos and things like that. You know, I think that in some respects, like some of the things that the people say about like the shortcomings of like, say, the the, squ- the squares or the shortcomings of, of a, a street based direct action oriented politics, you know, they resonate, don't they? Because they are, um, well, they tend to be small scale and the kind of urgent planetary problems that we face as a species are unlikely to be resolved at that level. There are also issues, you know, like sorts of, I suppose, more prosaic issues of, well, if you just have um, groups that organize around like a specific issue, then you're not going to build up the kind of political institutional wisdom that will lead to more effective kind of politics. You just have these cycles of activists that like, you know, that get involved, then burn out. And then, you know, you don't have like this kind of passing on of um, a kind of institutional memory or whatever. Um, and then you know there are loads of other there are loads of other, other things some some of which I try and address in in these pieces and it's not to say that those aren't that, that those don't resonate I mean I think I just think that they're really not resolved at, by something like you know getting involved in the Labour Party but um, I don't want to take on a kind of triumphalist tone like you're saying I don't want to like criticize people exactly for thinking that you know the the, the Labour Party you know the Labour Party was or, or, you know, any of these institutions was, was the right way to go necessarily. I suppose what I was thinking about in these pieces or like what I'm kind of like more interested in unpicking is how people thought that these were potentially complementary strategies, right? Because I think that we've got a situation now where, you know, the Labour Party is back to being utterly um, uninspiring. And the Tories are entrenched and ahead and, you know, we're likely to be in this situation for some time. There's also been like a kind of upsurge of, of street politics on the basis of um, Black Lives Matter. And I think that probably we're going to see 
more of a, you know, like most, I suppose, left leftist or left wing politics is going to be more street oriented in the next five, 10 years or so. I imagine that's going to happen. Could easily be wrong. But I think there's a, there's going to be a danger of like just saying, of acting like that's kind of vindication for, for people who didn't join the Labour Party or whatever. And just thinking, okay, well, that, you know, we were right. People have kind of come to their senses and come back, you know, welcome home. Let's get on with it kind of thing. Because I think if we don't think about like what, you know, what people saw as like as, as the continuities of, the, of those years and of that politic, then we're not taking, well, we're not taking ourselves seriously, really, as, as people who have ideas about politics and who are people who interact with, with others who, who disagree with us. You know, I think we should have enough respect for ourselves to think about, OK, well, what was it about our politics? What was it about what we were doing about, with regards to politics that allowed people to think that joining the Labour Party, getting involved in that is a complementary activity and I think like one well I think there are you know there are several ways into thinking about this but um if you look at something like the new anarchists which David Graeber wrote at the beginning of this century more focused on the kind of anti-capitalist movements at that time but I think you know describing kind of politics that persisted into the 2010s was that you don't you basically if you are one of these new anarchists, right, then you avoid like um, interminable political debate and your activity is oriented to what is feasible for you, for the people gathered together to do, you know, that's going to like have positive concrete results. You know, what's your, what are your tactics? That's where, and that's where argument comes in. It doesn't come in on the basis of like, when did the Russian revolution go wrong or whatever? It's about, you know, what's practical for us to do. And I suppose, like, I, I mean, I, I didn't, I, I don't think I even read that article at the time, but when I've read it subsequently, I th- I, it's chimed with me as thinking, you know, that sort of describes, you know, more or less where my head was at off the back of the, the square occupations. I mean, I do think, like, just because I'm a, such a dweeb that I'm always more interested in having a conversation about where the Russian Revolution went wrong, right? That's why we started um, this podcast. <laughs> exactly yeah I, d- I was i suppose persuaded that it's not worth like it's not worth wasting time on those kind of debates when it's possible to do positive activity you know that that kind of kind of bypass that sterility really but if you have that kind of attitude right um like what is it possible for us to do now that can achieve something concrete like even if you if you yourself as an individual think about that and think well this applies to non-state extra parliamentary politics there isn't anything about that kind of attitude that says it should only be applied to non-state anti-parliamentary politics. And it's quite easy to see how somebody could have the attitude, well, what is it that's possible for us to do now that's small scale and achievable, get our le- local Labour candidate elected, you know, and just have it justified on the same, you know, justified on the same basis as this is a yeah. concrete gain that we can make using our own resources without wasting time on um, political debates and what have you. And because I think partly, anyway, partly because of this, because this was like the kind of default mode of a lot of people on the left, and perhaps I'm just generalizing from my own experience here and from like, you know, a couple of other, uh, like people, like my own personal experience and the things I've read and stuff. If that is what people think, you know, direct, we, I do direct action politics because it can achieve something positive, concrete now, and it doesn't require like longer term strategic planning or anything 
we can just we can just do it and also it's urgent that we do it you know a lot of the time there's this urgency applied to it it's urgent that we stop this road being built it's urgent that we stop this person being deported it's urgent that we stop these people being evicted you know obviously you know there's, there's a lot of reason why that should be urgent and that urgency translates into not wasting time and getting on with what's practical and feasible and i do think that that you know while that's totally fine and justifiable that kind of like bypassing of of arguments and that kind of always being primed in that sense to think okay what do we do how do we do it let's get it done kind of attitude to, to translate quite easily really and without too much resistance or argument into institutional politics the institutional politics of getting someone elected getting a policy passed at conference all that kind of thing you know you can kind of see how it sort of translates once you remove it from the politics, like the broader politics, you know, the commitment to a non-state way of doing things, then I think you can see that there is a kind of, to me, it's, it seems quite clear when I think about it, the, the continuity is there. Why, why do you think there is that reticence to, to pull people up almost to say like, or to, to have these kind of hard lines on what, what is anti-status politics and what isn't? You know, and I, I wonder if, again, you know, looking back uh, at the early part of this decade or the decade just gone you know it's something you mentioned in your piece you know this is perhaps as much of anything a a response to decades of defeat for the left and and, you know including the the anti-status you know non-parliamentary left a feeling that of isolation a feeling of not being able to do things not being able to get things happening not having that wider as you put it earlier you know common sense issues chiming with people perhaps you know seeing this kind of surge of enthusiasm for broadly speaking the same goals at least in the immediate term not wanting to then put people off and being like whoa like hang on like don't waste your time with the labor party your time and your energy and your money like that is that is detrimental to instead it it was a well, people are doing something, you know, again, as someone that lived through the, uh, as a political adult, you know, from 2000 to 2010, the idea of seeing some of the things that we saw, you know, in, in Spain in 2011, and that was, it was such a shift, such a change in the, in the, just the atmosphere, the way that people were talking and thinking that maybe there was a hesitancy to then, my own hesitancy sometimes is to be like, well, no one wants to listen to to that old anarchist repeating the old the old cliches and the old axioms you know that's not really what's being called for in that position but at the same time you know there's a reason why they've stayed in the tradition for that long which is that you know through repeated experience this happens a lot you know this co-option and absorption of energy and repeatedly we see results like we see now so maybe you're right and that we should be a little bit more forthright and again not in that slightly tedious way of saying well we told you so or you know Kropotkin told you so it's like that that's not going to get you many friends is it or help very much but at the same time to just be like oh cool like you know you've gone from being someone in my anti-deportations thing to someone who's spending an awful lot of time in local Labour Party meetings and eventually supporting someone that refuses to stand against a bill that that explicitly 
targets greater police powers to detain and deport. You know, and 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 yet, you, you know, maybe yeah, some you know, theoretical or you know, broader interventions earlier along those trajectories, you know, would be good. But the the reason that that people are reticent about it, and the reason that it like stopped being the kind of default way of doing politics, were good reasons. You know, people were fed up of sterile know-it-alls talking about the same thing all the time, like you say. And, you know, the way that that, like, sort of lends itself to often, like, macho anarchist bros, like, talking over people and things like that. I, I don't think that that would have saved the day had that uh, had that existed in, you know, 2012 or whatever. I, I suppose, like, that that's something that I'm not sure about, really. It's like, how... Um, should people organize in terms of in terms of their politics i mean i I think that like whatever wherever you come down in your politics you have to avoid a sense of triumphalism or vindication you know we haven't been vindicated because we're we're always losing so there isn't a you know we can say yeah that the statist option is always negative and we're always being defeated by it or whatever but you know the the fact that these moments of rupture that seem to promise so much in a more radically anti-state or anti-parliamentarian kind of way, can't don't sustain themselves, don't lead to like longer term, you know, more people identifying with like anti-state politics. Also, you know, shows that <laughs> there are some there are problems there as well, right? That there's no there's nothing that can be taken for granted in that sense. And I suppose that you know it's just thinking about those kinds of things that that I want to use the, the newsletter for if people think that that sounds incredibly tedious then don't you know don't sign up but um but yeah it's still something that vexes me you know keeps me awake but I mean recently I, I woke up one morning and I've, you know thinking about this I all you know like it, these sorts of more or less intractable political problems and I just thought well the, the clock is ticking on ecological catastrophe right this is something that kind of is the background to all kind of political thinking and discussion at the moment. It seems pretty unlikely that any kind of positive proposal for the transformation of society is going to avert that. If, if that's the case, right, if, if you know, these broader catastrophes can't be averted, and if it's possible that like what we think of as, as capitalism is, is perhaps going to collapse or at least be forced to contract or... or going to splinter as a consequence of forces that are are by now beyond any of our control then what's at stake in terms of like advocating one specific route to socialism you know in this in this period because that kind of transition those kind of propositional politics that you know socialists of all stripes have been advocating for the best part of 200 years is now is like increasingly likely to be off the table and what we're likely to be you know or future generations are likely to have to think about is how to survive in humane ways subsequent to a kind of collapse because i don't relish that prospect in any kind of way but i think that if that is the case then any kind of politics that it tends towards anti like a genuine kind of anti-racism genuine no borders politics mutual aid solidarity even if that takes on occasionally self-defeating statist forms, right? Because those status, because that can only ever be an ephemeral and it's never actually going to re- result in a kind of concrete transformation. 
in the way that, you know, like it's um, most dogmatic propagandists think it could. As long as like those kind of like, th those kind of politics are, are persisting behind those kind of phenomenal forms, then um, it's, it's all to the good in terms of like surviving, surviving the fall, you know, and the flood. It's not just after the apocalypse. It's kind of the thing that I, I think that what remains so prescient about, you know, and this has come up in many of the things that we've read as well, you know, stuff that you wouldn't say necessarily even strictly adhere to, you know, it's not like an, an anarchist position, but, you know, some of the things we read in, in from, say, The Common Wind by Julius Scott and, you know, things around the Paris Commune, and these moments where the catastrophe is ongoing and happening and people still remain able to enact a, a, a politics, like you say, a, against racial boundaries, against national boundaries, for the good and love of humanity, you know, that's that's the only hope, I think, in catastrophe. We do have evidence that people have taken ruptures at a run and tried to bring something better. I was thinking less about after the catastrophe and more during it, because what's, you know, what is going to happen, regardless of the, whatever the end point, if there you know, is such a thing, looks like the post-flood the world, how we get there is, is going to look really really bad worse than people can picture at the moment and we will see a, a retrenchment a greater retrenchment of state powers fighting political parties over who's you know the most adamant to deport the most people resist the most kind of climate refugees into one another's countries where drawbridges can be pulled up an easy critique of of you know the position that we're sort of loosely talking around is yeah, well, you know, that's not going to change. That's not going to change, you know, who runs the world and who's ultimately responsible for this. But I think, again, it goes back to kind of what I was saying is what constitutes a, a victory and success. Firstly, I would say to that kind of, uh, you know, criticism that I've sort of invented myself, but it is when you hear, is you don't seem to be winning either. So by your standards, so maybe you need to reflect on that you know, about what constitutes victory for yourself. It's not like this kind of institutional turn has succeeded in producing a great deal of, of left-wing state projects. But then also it's about, if you're not, if you're taking that then as the reality, what, you know, what do you do about it? And if you can help to create a community, a society of whatever scale that promotes basically solidarity and luck during what's coming i think that is you know you you have then done as far as i would see it that's good political work that's that that's uh, and, and is better than attempting to prop up or erect a new monolith when you mention like the the like the books we've read and things Obviously, like these, you know, the, 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 lots of those like kind of ideas have been playing on my mind and like influenced like where I'm sort of at with politics at the moment as well. I mean, definitely like something that come, came across that we were, you know, where we were discussing Julius Scott and also um, Caliban and the Witch, the idea of like capitalism as a kind of as a as a counter revolution, and the kind of bleak consequences of that 
for political activity at, at precisely the moment that socialism emerges as a project to transform the world. And I do re really like sort of the, the possibility of change coming in an unexpected way, like a rupture um, asserting itself in some way. Like, you know, like the, the success of the square occupations, for example, obviously, you know, a lot of like hard organizing went into, you know, behind the scenes, went into those kinds of activities, like particularly, you know, um, not just in, in Spain, say, but in the in Egypt, where which I think was like the main, you know, the, the Turkish square occupation was the main kind of like impulse for the square occupations in Spain in terms of inspiration. But for most people, that it was like a complete surprise, wasn't it? it just, it, to me, it just seemed to come completely out of nowhere, really. And that kind of, you know, obviously something can happen again that is is propositional, that is offering an alternative way of doing things that might emerge. And, and probably if it does, it will take something like that kind of form, you know, like that kind of open, direct, directly democratic, assemblyist kind of form, because that you know, has tended to be the way in which like those more positive kind of ruptures have uh, manifested. Whether that kind of unforeseen, surprising insurgence or, or rupture can then become like a propositional project that advocates an, a way of transforming the world seems dubious. I mean, in our last, like it's the last time we were chatting, we were talking about Kronstadt and I mean, it was like, obviously there have been like workers revolts since Kronstadt, you know, like obviously Spain is like perhaps the, the example that we're most, well, obviously the example we're most familiar with, there have been other like, um, insurgencies based on worker democracy you know Hungary China lots of different examples but that kind of like concrete way of saying okay this insurgency is based on this model of of doing democratic working class politics and it's attached to a vision of socialism and anti-capitalism you know that hasn't really emerged with that kind of coherency and in a way that's like looked to and believed in by people all around the world and for a long time and you'd think if it was going to happen there would be some kind of inkling that it was going to happen i think that it seems like it's not going to like i was thinking you know if, if karl marx say like karl marx like obviously um when he was writing about the, the proletariat the working class like the people who he had around him, you know, who were in workers' groups and things like that, were cabinet makers, watchmakers, shoemakers, things like that, you know, not people who we now envision as the classic industrial working class. But in a way, he kind of like predicts the generality of that worker, right? That 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 sort of factory industrial factory worker. And it's kind of amazing the way he, he was able to sort of see with with that kind of clarity. But I think like people extrapolate from that, that he has some kind of um, more prophetic power than he really did. You know, he, he, he with with lots of good reason, he thought that, well, you know, th that um, that class will is in a position to transform the world through its own struggles. It's the class that has nothing to lose by getting rid of capitalism, has everything to gain by instituting communism. Communism is an idea that's been around for a long time. It's time has come. It's like it's in the air. People talk about it. We can see how it could. There are impulses towards organizing in that kind of direction. It's going to happen, right? It's a historical possibility. I think it was a historical possibility. 
But if it was going to happen, and if it was given that the clock is ticking on ecological collapse, we'd, you know, we'd have an inkling that it was going to happen. You'd see how the force is in motion, you know, if you like. That, 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 that kind of like positive propositional, we can be the active change that saves the planet. Should that be informing our politics? And if it isn't, then what are the stakes then for like arguing for a non-state? You know, it just it then just becomes like this practical question again. And if it is just a practical question of what, you know, then as we've seen or as I've tried to argue, it quite easily can just translate into electoral politics anyway. What we do, or what we're trying to do anyway, is obviously very small scale. It's not like particularly ambitious, really, but it, it kind of like acts as a sort of valve for that kind of impulse to think about these problems as as political and relating to history and relating to, you know, a broader attachment to to politics and a broader like affinity with a certain way of going about things while not like interrupting people during meetings or or like just taking the piss out of people on social media or whatever this is how we try and think through politics right this is how we try and think about the relationship of history to politics and it's incomplete and we're not 100% certain of it but we are interested in affinity and interested in what whether other people are thinking along the same lines and what going from there basically it it has become a you know my primary sort of academic endeavor now is is this podcast given that i I no longer work in academia and it's been to be honest i've not enjoyed reading history as much as when I'd stopped being a, a paid historian, like the, the range of things that we're covering. One of the themes that we tend to, not even out of choice, just we end up reading about quite a lot is movements or events of peoples that, that you could quite easily frame as defeated, as, as defeats. You know, you look at Kronstadt, the Paris Commune, the Spanish Revolution, all of these things, you know, I, and even on you know smaller levels, you know we look at quite often a, a, a events that could be seen as as tragic or even even much bigger than those things. Like if you're looking at Federici's you know the transition to capitalism as a kind of monumental sort of defeat for some ways of thinking. But that hasn't really been my personal and kind of political reaction to reading history in this way. It's a phrase that, that gained a lot of traction in 2011 is, you know, another world is possible. Well, I think, you know, it sounds quite, sounds a bit hackneyed here, but I think what doing this podcast is doing and hopefully what people listening to it are taking away from it, I would hope, is the idea that another world was possible, that, you know, contingency has existed throughout in all these different circumstances and, and moments. People have argued for, different ways, different outcomes to what we accept uh, or, or what we see as the accepted outcome. And if, you know, there is any hope to be gained from history, it's not in, say, learning A to B what, you know, the communards did uh, and hoping to emulate that because, you know, that ended really badly for everyone. It's not learning exactly how the CNT structured itself and prepped for revolution because, again, it, it ended pretty badly. But, you know, where I take that kind of hope from what we're doing and what we're reading is is in those what history can tell us is that people have thought in wonderful and, and brilliant ways and sought to put that into action and so the the kind of 
the despondency that we might feel at moments like this, facing the cataclysm that we do in, in terms of what's happening with the planet, but also, you know, on a national scale, what's going on in our politics and, you know, all kinds of things on a local scale in Liverpool, even, you know, I had a conversation and I went to the pub for the first time in, you know, six months the other day. And there, there are local elect for people who aren't in Liverpool, there are local elections currently uh, about to take place in Liverpool. And there's been a, a monumental cock up within the Liverpool Labour Party, which is kind of pretty cemented in power where they've, Deselected candidates, and you know, just a very look it up. It's a very tedious and corrupt story of Labour in Liverpool. And someone you know who whose politics I respect and whose activism I respect it has been a, a supporter of the Labour Party as well. Those things aren't mutually exclusive. Says to me, well, what do you think about like what what can we do? And feeling such you know despondency about having that avenue of their politics you know, basically taken away because there's no way that they can vote for Labour at this point. I mean, you know, just trying to get through that. It's not the only, it's not the only thing that you can do. And in, indeed, it's not the only way that we can and should measure success. And that's what I think a, a historical view gives us. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. Slightly different episode to normal. We'd like to use this opportunity to thank all of you for listening to our podcast. We're genuinely surprised and thrilled, really, that so many people tune in and all in different places of the world and with different backgrounds and things. It really does give us heart and keeps us going. So thank you. Special thanks also to all of the guests and collaborators we've had over the past year. We're going to keep on you know, doing our standard uh, chats between ourselves about books that we've read and also at the same time, keeping up with the interviews and collaborations and so on. So plenty more to come from the Anarchist Book Club in coming weeks, months, who knows, years. The podcast music is Stealing Orchestra and Rafael Donosio, Gente de Miña Terra. The podcast logo is an adapted version of the Left Book Club logo. Love and solidarity. Until next time.